I'm Richard, he's Frank, this is Phone Booth Fighting, brought to you twice weekly, of course, new episodes uploading on Tuesdays and Fridays, reunited back at Stately Mirror Manor after Frank's walk in the wilderness the last couple of weeks. It's fight week, Frank, UFC 202, we've got big time fights to talk about, uh, Saturday night at the T-Mobile Arena is going to be the rematch of Conor McGregor and Nate Diaz, we're going to break down uh, the fight card here for you, uh, and we'll get into that momentarily after I let you know about a very pressing matter, and that is this Thursday night, L.A. Comedy Club, Stratosphere Hotel and Casino on the Las Vegas Strip, 10 p.m., a free show, Frank, that you and I are putting on, making our return to the L.A. Comedy Club. Uh, we're going to be on stage taping a live episode of Phone Booth Fighting. It's going to be a swap cast with MMA Roasted. The great Adam Hunter is going to bring his MMA Roasted podcast to the stage. And our special on-stage guest is going to be the UFC flyweight champion of the world, Demetrius Mighty Mouse Johnson. You and I did this uh, but just about a month ago yeah. at UFC 200. And uh, we we did it a couple of nights before that big card, and it it was a, a great success. We we really liked the way that it went, and uh, Gorgeous George from MMA Junkie is going to come out and host for us again. He's going to host the event, and I also I've got another special guest that's going to be joining us. I'm going to tell you about in a minute. So the guest list is growing, but as I said, free show. You want to come out and watch us tape the podcast. Adam's great on stage. Demetrius will be uh, up there with us. And as of right now, the plan is that uh, our own Frank Mir is going to make his stand-up comedy debut. He's going to try a few minutes of stand-up comedy. I haven't talked to Adam Hunter yet uh, specifically about the flow of the show, Frank, but here's what I'm imagining we, we do. You tell me what you think about this. Um, George, of course, is going to host for us and everything. Uh, I figured maybe if you want, this to- it's, your, it's your gig, it's your stand-up right. gig, so you let me know how you want this to go. But I thought if you want me to like bring you on, you know, I could just kind of get up, maybe you know, few jokes, warm yeah, up the I, crowd just I a think tad. That's actually a very, uh, you like that? Okay, very, very strong idea. Okay, just kind of lay out, you know, hey, you're about to whatever see. momentum I can get yeah. before I make this jump, guys. You're in for a treat. <laughs> you're about to see a hot young new comedian here that's gonna uh, debut. Yeah, and then we we let you get up, and you and I, when we get done with this podcast, we're gonna have a writing session as comedians do sometimes. Sort of like uh, you know, in in your world, you would have the sparring session. Right. This will this is, be a video breakdown? We're gonna break down the mm-hmm. video. Of the opponent mm-hmm. discuss strengths weaknesses plan That's a right. plan b plan c round one you know and kind of map out how we're going to train and you know everything mm-hmm. from the first couple of weeks to you know sparring yeah. partners and you know you break it down you know the nuts and bolts uh That's the right. technical breakdown of what the, we're about to do the difference is uh in your past you're used to looking at one singular opponent who's physically imposing and angry and wants to harm you in this case your opponent will be a room full of uh, inebriated people. Who I'm trying to keep from wanting to get physical. Yeah. And want who are, and want to hurt me. Who are going, he's not that funny. <laughs> I don't care if these tickets were free. Yeah. No, no. I, I think I actually think you're, you're going to be helped somewhat by the fact that you're going to be in front of a friendly crowd. Because it's going to be our, our phone booth fighting listeners, Adam's MMA roasted listeners. Uh, I'm sure a lot of the MMA junkies will be out there with uh, Gorgeous George coming out. So 
trust me, you'll you'll be in a much better uh, situation than than a lot of people are when they make their uh, comedic debut. But we're going to work on uh, material tonight in a writing session, and then we'll uh, we'll go over it all tomorrow before you uh, take it to the stage. So that is uh, Thursday night, L.A. Comedy Club right here in Las Vegas inside the Stratosphere Hotel and Casino on the Las Vegas Strip. 10 p.m. free show if you're in town for UFC 202. There's nothing else going on at 10 p.m. on Thursday night. Come out, see me, see Frank make his uh, stand-up comedy debut, and see Demetrius Mighty Mouse Johnson on stage with us for the duration of the show. And uh, also another very special guest I'm going to tell you about here momentarily from the rock world. We're have some rock and roll royalty out there yeah i never put it past you to be of some diverse yeah area of uh our uh, pop culture yeah uh, at this point i think i'll be surprised if we bring up some realm of the world's entertainment or whatnot and you tell me that you don't know at this point i expect you to know somebody that works at nasa yeah i mean i, w- I would consider it a uh i would consider it a, a weakness if i didn't i'd be like well i got a gap I gotta, yeah. I gotta fill that. I gotta start interviewing people. Uh, so I'll tell you who our uh, our other special guest is going to be from the uh, the rock and roll uh, royalty lineage here momentarily out there on uh, Thursday night. But let's get right into UFC 202. We got a lot to uh, talk about on this one, Frank. Uh, Nick Diaz and Conor McGregor in their much anticipated rematch. I watched this fight again like last week, and you know it was actually. I mean, I, I I remember thinking, and I was there live. I remember thinking, all right, Connor won the first round, but I I didn't remember. I was thinking more of the second round was going Nate's way than it did. I thought the second round was just more competitive until Nate rocked Connor, and that was the turning point. And then uh, Connor shot the 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 weak takedown, and and Diaz got his back and choked him out. But overall, I it it was a closer fight than I remember it being. Um, that being said, as I look at this... Closer on, as far as... More competitive. Connor wasn't as dominating at the times he was winning? No, I thought that it was... I just... Particularly that second round. Okay. I remember thinking... Because for some reason when I saw it live, I I saw it as Connor struggling for more of that round than he did. And when I watched the replay, I thought, meh, it was, it was a back-and-forth affair right up until... He got rocked. He shot in. He got his back. I mean, that was obviously right. the point where the fight was uh, was over. And so maybe in my head over the last couple of weeks, I was trying to think of trying to make a case for picking Connor in this one. You know, I picked him in in the first fight and picked wrongly. You took Diaz, didn't I you? I did. Yeah. And and I remember you and uh, and Angelo both were uh, on uh, that night taking uh, taking Diaz. And stylistically, you were right. Uh, you know, you, size-wise, you were right. But I, w- I was looking at uh, at this on paper today. Let me just throw out a few numbers for you, and then I'll uh, I'll get your thoughts on these. Conor McGregor's got 15 KOs, but he's only got one submission and 12 uh, first-round finishes. Diaz has only been KO'd and submitted one time each. Right. So what that tells you is there's there's not a lot of early finishing of Nate Diaz. No. If you're going to beat him, you're typically outlasting him over three rounds or five rounds. In, in my case. opinion, the blueprint on Nick and most guys that are his type of fighter, 
uh, a great, you know, good striker who's great at jujitsu, uh, kind of like a Miguel Torres was back at WEC, how his brother is. Those kind of guys, you have to wrestle them to death. Mm-hmm. You wrestle them and you keep from getting submitted. You take them down. You eliminate their striking uh, innate and you just avoid being submitted, stay on top, and you win a judge's decision. I think if you look at Nate, uh, if I had to pick the prototypical way to try to beat him, Look at Roy McDonald's fight with him. Yeah. That's the way, that's the blueprint and the kind of fighter that poses the kind of fighter that he is a problem. Conor McGregor is not one to wrestle you to death. No. He uses, not. he uses his, his length and speed, his, his speed, footwork, his elusiveness, power. Typically, but the problem with using length in this equation as opposed to the 145 pound featherweight division is, uh, not only is he at a reach disadvantage by a couple of inches and not only is he at a height disadvantage by a couple of inches, but this is also a lefty versus lefty matchup right which changes it the does. equation i've been in those situations it sucks yeah i mean maybe explain that because mcgregor uh a lot of times uh has uh ends up being because of the the speed of his left will end up throwing a lot of lead lefts you know knocking out right. aldo or whatever like he did and so a lot of times his right isn't he isn't, isn't even having to be that much of a factor in the fight but in this case uh, lefty versus lefty, you right got the guy completely turned point. around, right? They do. Typically, when you fight a guy that you guys are in opposite stances, you have the orthodox fighter versus the unorthodox fighter. Yeah. Um, and there's different aspects when we talk about the kicks, when we talk about the takedowns that come into play. But specifically, we could talk about the punching, the boxing aspect of that matchup. Uh, since both guys like to throw their hands primarily, you know, uh, you know, I think uh, Connor is a great kicker with his karate style kicks, but um, really his left hand, his straight left, as you brought up, is probably his most dangerous weapon. Um, when he fights an orthodox guy, first of all, the first advantage that most southpaws have is that one out of what nineteen people in the world are left-handed. Yeah small percentage so when you go in the gym a lot of right-handed guys so i get to as a southpaw primarily you know you'll switch stances back and forth sometimes due to injury or whatnot um but when i'm injury free and i can fight in my favorite stance is just a southpaw um i have an advantage over my opponents because i have a plethora of right-handed guys to spar with all the time so the angles and the lines i get to see uh the disadvantage that a right-handed opponent has is that that ratio is the complete opposite for him. Most of the time, most opponents probably are sparring left-handed guys that were converted. You know, or, or right. You know, uh, an orthodox fighter that is a partner. Like, hey man, my next opponent fights southpaw. Would you mind sparring me as a southpaw? Now you have a guy who's primarily an orthodox fighter switching stances to be a good sparring partner. But it's not like he's giving you the best look someone can possibly give you. And so you get to take advantage of some of the holes that occur when people are mirror imaged of each other as far as my right foot forward, your left foot's forward. And one of the biggest holes that occur is the straight. Coming from both guys, the straight right hand to a southpaw's chin is the thing I have to worry the most about as a southpaw. Uh, the straight left hand going to his chin is what most right-handed people have to worry about coming from a southpaw. But as I said earlier, the southpaw's seen it a lot more. So a lot of left leads, you see that a lot from southpaws. And then the other thing that happens is that the jab actually becomes more difficult to use. 
because as a southpaw versus an orthodox, our feet and hands kind of, you see a lot of pine and, and climb, our jabs almost nullify each other. So the hook becomes kind of a, you know, if I can get outside you, but if you step outside my foot trying to beat me to the outside, which is the, you know, the, the typical first, you know, day of uh, how do you fight a southpaw? Mm-hmm. Well, there's a split second that your foot's in the air. You try to beat me on the outside, boom, straight left down the middle. And again, the southpaw has been doing it his whole career. The orthodox guy, not so much. So all of a sudden now, you have two southpaws facing each other. Now the rarity of that occurring is even even more rare because if you're the left-handed guy in the gym, what are the chances that there are other left-handed guys in the gym? Yeah. Your weight. So you're not getting a lot of looks at southpaws yourself. And so some of the angles and lines that you're used to fighting right-handed people are just as awkward as now for you as it is for the right-handed guy fighting the southpaw. Southpaws don't like fighting southpaws any more than orthodox guys do in boxing because of the different lines, and it becomes a different fight almost altogether. So I looked at it maybe intangibles, I guess, would be a way to put it. Uh, again, reasons why I was sort of trying to talk myself into picking Conor McGregor uh, for this rematch. You know, the the thing that we talked about that I said about Diaz last time around that, you know, he always comes to fight. He doesn't, in my mind, always necessarily come to win, meaning that he's going to fight one way. There's not a lot of uh, round-by-round adjustments with Nate Diaz. If it's not going well the first round, it, typically it's not going to go well the second and the third. Maybe you're getting wrestled to death like you just talked about. Conversely, if he has an awesome first round, uh, more of that to come because he's not going to run out of gas. So he can probably keep doing that uh, for the duration. But note this about his record. Nate Diaz is 20 and 10. He wins exactly twice the number of fights that he loses. And in his last nine fights, he's five and four. He's one fight better than a 500 fighter in his last nine fights, but yet has arguably been on the ride of his career because of some of those performances, the, the winning performances, in those last nine fights. He is tied with Joe Lozon for the most performance of the night bonuses ever with 14. So it that, to me, completely speaks to that point which is you just don't know which kind of night he's going to have. It could be a performance of the night uh, uh, fight. It could be, uh, you know, in the, like I said, the last nine fights, he's, he's almost completely evenly split as a 500 fighter. But you don't think about, in, I don't anyway, uh, of his last nine fights of being a real downturn of his career. No. I mean, you think about some great nights. He gets uh, edged out by people that can out-control him. Yeah, maybe that's it. But no one's it. ever destroyed him. Right. I think the biggest destruction maybe I can think of of ever watching him fight in a loss was the Rafael Dos Anjos fight yeah. uh, with the roundhouses to the legs. But I think also the wrestling of Rafael and the takedowns mm-hmm. and able to survive on the ground as a black belt in jiu-jitsu himself, um, I think also played largely into that. So again, you had a guy who I think at that point, Rafael might have had the record for the most takedowns in the lightweight division. So you have a guy, again, who maybe not on paper people think of as a wrestler, but I point to his wrestling played very much into Rafael Dos Anjos is a uh, uh, offensive style and defensive style and it played very much into his victories and, and and reason why he was so successful. Connor, I saw him um 
Friday night. I went over to his gym here in uh, Las Vegas. He's got a makeshift gym. So I say makeshift. It's for the average person, it's a very nice gym. But, you know, they, they rented out a warehouse space and set him up a complete gym to do sparring. It's got a full cage in there and everything. And I got invited over there Friday night uh, with a few media members for a closed workout. So we went over there and, uh, I asked him some questions. I actually tagged it on to the end of, uh, our, uh, last episode, episode 55 that was released. And, you know, one of the things I was asking him about was the, the lack of trash talking that's happened in this fight coming from him, at least perceived by me to be that he hasn't been his typical brash, self and he 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 didn't prove me wrong in that exchange but he did bring up the fact during the the conversation with media that he thinks that Nate Diaz is walking around uh heavy coming into this fight he says that he had uh he was his understanding that Nate Diaz had gotten up to 200 pounds I don't know about that I don't know if even if he did get up to 200 pounds where where he's at now uh you know how many weeks ago that was but that seemed to be uh is as close to any indication that conor mcgregor was given about a potential conditioning problem with nate diaz but my gosh it's awfully hard for me to imagine either one of the diaz brothers having a particular conditioning problem yeah at this point we've never seen it yeah Uh, and the the next biggest fight of his life you know um, he can really solidify himself uh uh, greatly here. Well, I, I guess at the same time, if he isn't successful Saturday night, uh, maybe he can make a ploy for uh, a rubber match, especially if uh, it ends in a decision. You know, I choked you out. You beat me by decision. I yeah. out. Uh, I can see that. Um, but uh, that being said, uh, the guy's trained hard for fights. He was getting paid a lot less than he's getting paid for this one for. Uh, it, would, it would shock me if... Uh, uh, he came in out of shape. Uh, so, not as much as it would shock me if all of a sudden uh, uh, Connor developed one hell of a double leg takedown. Um, yeah. But at the same time, it, it just it, it seems like uh, I wouldn't really. If I'm Connor's camp, uh, hoping that the other guy who has never really shown up out of shape is going to show up out of shape. Mm-hmm. Oof, that's kind of a scary mindset. So here's my question going into this fight: Then can Connor take Nate to a decision? Being that Nate is so hard to finish, only submitted once, only KO'd once, Conor McGregor gets so many of those KOs that he has early. His only decision victory uh, in in Conor McGregor's entire career has been his decision win over Max Holloway. Win or lose, it's the only decision. The two times that he was uh, defeated, those were uh, submissions, I believe, before he was in the UFC. I say two times before the UFC, now three if you add uh, Nate Diaz onto that. But um, uh, so that being said, uh, I, think, I think the answer is no. I, I think the answer you. is that Nate Diaz wins this fight again. Maybe he doesn't finish him quite so early. Maybe Connor is uh, a little more um, uh, conservative in the early part of the fight. I don't know. Or l- l- let me flip that around. Or maybe Connor is more aggressive in the first part of the fight, knowing that that's his shot. But either way, I can't figure out as I put all this on paper how the outcome is any different yeah if saturday night connor's arm is raised as the victor the the most plausible way i could see that occurring is a a first round knockout Mm -hmm. Uh, i don't see that coming very easily but if i'm connor's camp that's what he's gonna be strongest at is his power and speed is going to be at its best 
at the beginning of the fight uh, and take advantage of it. You're hitting a guy who's very hard to knock out, who's had a very long career, and has only been knocked out one time. Uh, so it's possible. Uh, obviously, anybody can catch anybody, and uh, you know Connor has great power. Uh, I would try to capitalize on that. Uh, the more dangerous uh, game approach I could see as being the other plan for uh, uh, Connor is if he's somehow able to completely just outstrike uh, Nate, hurt him, stun him, and stay away from him, basically stay on his bicycle, footwork, movement, speed uh, for 25 minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, or, you know, enough rounds that he wins by a decision, you know, three out of the f- uh, five rounds. Uh, so that is plausible, too, because, I mean, people sit there and go, oh, you got to fight perfectly. I'm like, well, you know, he could have won the first round, take off the second round, just don't get submitted, knocked out. Uh, maybe, you know, just edge it out on points, come back strong the second, third round, take off the fourth, come back and try to win the fifth. Uh, you know, uh, not that, you know, that's the approach to purposely take rounds off, but he doesn't necessarily have to win every round. Mm-hmm. He just has to make sure that he wins more rounds than Nate does by outstriking him and, and, you know, using his footwork and speed and at the same time uh, avoiding, you know, a clinch and a guard jump, or, you know, a foot trip, you know, any kind of uh, fall to the ground. Uh, I'm taking Diaz again for the same reasons I took him the first time. I feel that with his reach and the busyness of his hands that, you know, Connor's style takes a lot more energy. Uh, he kind of referred to it a little bit after his fight, you know, that Diaz was more efficient with his energy. Well, Connor, his style is very explosive in and out. So he's jumping all his weight forward, all his weight out. Um, that's not easy to do over a long period of time. Uh, Nate doesn't. He, Nate plods with his feet, you know, moves forward like a more of a professional boxer type. You never really see professional boxers jumping in and out. Yeah. You'll see them kind of, you know, move in within inches of the, you know, use their jab and stalk each other. Uh, that takes a lot less energy. So now you have a guy who already has pretty phenomenal conditioning to begin with, and his style takes less energy. Uh, the other thing, too, the reason why I would bet, uh, you know, uh, with Nate is I don't see a first round knockout occurring. And the other thing is, is if Nate gets in trouble, he's boxing, doesn't like what he sees, he gets hit with a hard shot. Let's say he gets stunned just like uh, Connor was stunned in that fight. Mm-hmm. Nate can sit on his butt, purely just sit down, put his feet up in the air. Pull guard. Yeah. Uh, does it look good on the judges? No. He's probably going to lose the round by doing so. But he has that in his back pocket where at any moment he can, he is more well-rounded. So he can take the fight to different areas to recover if he is hurt. Uh, Connor doesn't have that. We saw in the fight when they fought together, Nate hurt him one time in the second round, caught him with the shot. Uh, they're both throwing uh, punches kind of at the same time, and, and Nate's caught him and, and with the, the, the hook, uh, and it hurt him. Well, when he was rocked, he can't sit down and pull guard uh, on Nate. Uh, we've seen that he can't shoot on him. Uh, his shot, you know, was was a bad idea. Uh, so that being said, he has to fight completely on almost kind of like uh, he. It's a balancing game, and he has to stand on a post. It's like, look, as long as you stay here while we're trying to move you off, you'll win. You mm-hmm. step in any other direction, you automatically lose. Mm-hmm. Where Nate can kind of like, well, I can lose the battle, but just because I lose the battle doesn't mean I'm going to lose the war. Connor doesn't have that. He can't lose whatever battle he comes with. He has to stick to that battle to win the war. He loses the battle, he loses the war. Um, I think that, you know, again, saying that because 
is Connor capable of hurting Nate with his punches? Well, yeah. The guy hits really hard. He's capable of hurting him. Um, but with that being said, if he's hurt, Nate has somewhere he he can fall into a clinch. He can, like I said, purely just sit down and pull guard and try to recover for a second. You know, if he's not within grabbing distance, or uh, you know, or taking a shot or whatnot. Um, whereas uh, if Nate now we know is capable of hurting Connor, where does Connor go? What does he do? You know, he's stunned in the fight and. Does he just continue swinging? Well, now he gets highlight reel knocked out because he's dazed and he's swinging with, you know, with uh, shaky legs. Uh, he's going to take a shot. Uh, the other factor, too, that the reason why, again, it's another area where I'm like, well, you know, that makes me want to go for uh, Nate is Nate really has no quit in him as far as fighting. Yeah. Um, like you said, does he quit maybe trying to win the fight? Yeah. But that's on a scorecard. You know, like, mm-hmm. I, I think he gets out of his mind, like, whether it's a scorecard or not. But he has an ego about his fighting that you're not going to finish me. You're not going to knock me out. You know, you might beat me on a judge's decision, but I'll take that loss. I'm not going to take the loss where you actually really, in Nate's mind, if it was a street fight, if you knock him out or submit me, you would have beat me there, too. The judge's decision means that, well, just we ran out of time. You know, mm-hmm. even if you out-wrestle me and throw me around... That's why I think that they can go into that gear. Uh, Connor doesn't seem to have that gear. I think that he, uh, because of his speed and explosive and natural talent as an athlete, and you know, and obviously with some quality training and has enhanced it. I don't see him as, as somebody that's a fight from behind kind of guy. Yeah. I don't see him as somebody that if he's hurt, he's going to fight out of it. If anything, when he took the shot and Nate took his back, his back defense was very poor. Almost like he willing to accept it, and as soon as the choke was applied, there was very little fight on his part. And it's easy to point comparison. And Holly Holmes is not any more well known for her jujitsu than Connor is, and she fought so long and did not accept defeat that she got choked out. Connor chose to tap way before he was going to be choked out because he tapped a lot of times and never lost consciousness. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So that means as soon as he felt the choke and was uncomfortable, he quit. He tapped and cried uncle. He didn't quit because of extreme pain. He wasn't his arm stretched out ready to break. He wasn't in a choke, tried to get out, threw a couple punches behind his head to try to hit the guy in the face, realized that, oh, the room's getting dark, time to tap. Yeah. Those are acceptable. Uh, I understand that. Uh, uh, he tapped the minute the choke was in, and that mentality – that is raw. That's what we saw him in the fight. And people can improve that aspect of their psyche. I mean, the military is based upon that, taking average guys, breaking them down, and, and reforming them in, uh, increasing their mental toughness. It takes some time to do, though. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, even after their you know, training or you know, basic training or boot camp, whatever you know, branch of the you know, armed forces they're in, um, they're still, they go and you know, they're, they're the private, you know, the new guy you know, in the uh, platoon, and you know, they have to work their way. And, and you know, it, it takes time to make a guy who isn't naturally has that spirit to have that spirit. Uh, has Connor had enough time to identify that he needed to increase that fighting spirit that... I already know that Nate has. We've seen it, you know. Nate's never quit trying to win the fight as far as looking for a submission or maybe looking to punch you. He just, at certain point, stops trying to win by points. Mm-hmm. I think he stops thinking, well, did I win this round or not? In his mind, he's like, well, you didn't knock me out. and You know, I didn't knock you out. We'll go to the next round. Mm-hmm. Maybe not so much keeping score. 
Yeah, yeah, and uh, Nate Diaz is not going to be quite the uh, the payout uh, that he was the first time around. If he does win this thing, he's he's a slight underdog. He's a plus one hundred five. Uh, McGregor is a minus one twenty five, and I don't know with those odds how true that is in terms of what handicappers really expect versus the Irish money. You know, which I think that's being yeah. I think a lot of people. It's funny. I'll, um, you know, I'll, I'll have friends or fans that talk to me about the odds i'm like you realize that when they first come out that's what the bookies that you know make it you know the sports book are anticipating and then the line moves according to how money's coming in how people mm-hmm. like the odds in favor that doesn't actually mean that's the actual odds of whether wooden guy yeah. <laughs> beat the other guy yeah um and so uh yeah i just i don't know i i find it hard to bet on connor in this fight because of his lack of wrestling and the fact that if they grapple on the ground, I mean, Connor has submissions on his uh, record and I realize it's earlier in his career, but by guys that were nowhere near the ability of Nate. Yeah. Uh, Nate has submitted black belts in jujitsu. He has submitted division one high level wrestlers. Uh, he is, he's good. Uh, you know, and the guys that he doesn't submit are able to either avoid it and they're good at submissions themselves. Uh, or have really great wrestling and can stay in really good position. Like, I don't know how great of a jiu-jitsu artist uh, Roy McDonald would be, but great wrestling, kind of a George St. Pierre on the ground where just never was in a bad position and never in a position to be submitted. Uh, I don't know. Connor strikes me as that kind of guy. Uh, I haven't really seen it. Could he be training a lot on it? Uh, yeah, I'm sure he is, but how many months has it been since the fight? A couple. Yeah, not yeah. a lot of time to prepare. So, again, I'm going with Nate, you know. Um, I think the only advantage that, that really Connor brings into this fight that he didn't have the last fight was a little bit more preparation. Yeah, and now you know what? that's interesting because I brought that up to him Friday too. Um, and, again, the, the audio of my, my brief three-question interview with Connor is on our last episode, uh, Phone Booth Fighting number 55, if you didn't hear it. But um, I brought that up to him too, the fact that, you know, so much was made – about Nate having a full camp for this fight. You know, well, gosh, if he beat Connor on however many days notice he had the first time around, 10 days, whatever it was, uh, now imagine him with a full camp. Well, that's true, but Connor McGregor's had a full camp to prepare for Nate Diaz, so there right. there would be something to be said for that. I, I, and I, I do think there is something to help him. Not as much because one of the main things, obviously, that you would go with is that uh, his opponent that he was scheduled to fight, Rafael Zazonios, mm-hmm. before he broke his foot mm-hmm. and pulled out, was a left-handed fighter. Yeah. So it isn't like you can pull the card going, well, you know, we prepared for a right-handed guy, and nine days late, you know, before the fight, you throw a lefty at us. Yeah. Uh, or it isn't, again, uh, we're fighting a guy who was a heavy wrestler, and if anything, uh, offensively, Probably less weapons he had to prepare for. Yeah. Um, you know, you have to worry about the hands of Rafael, who hits hard, who's a good boxer. You had to worry about the kicks and the takedown. On your feet, really, you have to worry about the overwhelming punching of Nate and the really good boxing. But as far as how many kicks he's throwing at you or taking you down, not as much as a, of a worry. Let's take a look at the UFC 202 co-main events. Anthony Rumble Johnson, who, by the way, will be joining us. Frank and I are going to talk to him. We're taping this Thursday morning, so I think what I'm going to do is uh, 
make that interview a part of Friday's phone booth fighting episode. So what you get on Friday is you'll get the uh, the live phone booth fighting taping swap cast that we do with uh, Adam Hunter uh, on Thursday night at uh, L.A. Comedy Club inside the Stratosphere Hotel and Casino here in Las Vegas. Uh, and then probably we'll put uh, Anthony Rumble Johnson on the end of that one because we're going to talk to him Thursday morning about his co-main event fight with Glover Teixeira. This one is is so interesting. First of all, you want to talk about something that just screams fun fight in all capital letters uh, on paper when you see it come up. Let me uh, let me hit you with a couple of numbers here, Frank, and then we'll dissect this one. Um, first of all. Uh, the two fighters have close to identical records. Uh, Rumble Johnson is 21 and five. Uh, Glover Teixeira is 25 and four. Uh, Anthony Johnson has had 13 wins by KO. Glover Teixeira has had 14 wins by KO. Um, Anthony Johnson uh, has had all but two of his wins come by way of knockout in the UFC. Their height and reach are identical. Their records, as I said, nearly identical. The only thing that I can really uh, determine on paper, um, I said, does Anthony, Anthony Johnson actually, I guess, says a, uh, I can't, oh God, is that a six or an eight? <laughs> This is so bad. Hold on. Uh, I guess Anthony Johnson. Uh, yeah, Anthony Johnson actually has a two-inch reach advantage. But uh, have your have your eyes started to go bad yet? Not quite yet. Yeah, well, they say that happens like 43 to 45. Yeah, get ready. Um, <laughs> Hopefully. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, what I was going to say, uh, when you really break this down on paper, the thing I think that, that jumps out at me more than anything else, if you just look at where these two guys have been headed, is that Anthony Johnson ran into Daniel Cormier and Glover Teixeira ran into Phil Davis and John Jones. You know, uh, John Jones is John Jones. Anybody that runs into him is likely going to have a bad night. But in the case of Cormier and uh, in the case of Phil Davis, you had uh, a couple of guys with extreme knockout power who ran into wrestlers. You know, uh, Cormier certainly had the uh, the, an- the antidote for Anthony Johnson fight? that uh... night. Phil? Mm-mm. Oh. No, he hasn't, uh, he hasn't matched up with him. So, you know, but neither one of these guys, uh, I mean, Johnson's got somewhat of a wrestling background, yeah. but, but these guys are known as heavy hitters and strikers. I think the, the big intangible in, in, in this fight uh, is what is, Grove, what is uh, uh, Glover's ground game really like? Because we haven't seen that so much. You know, he's kind of like his jujitsu game to me is sort of like what uh, Junior Dos Santos's jujitsu game has always been. Kind of a thing we hear a lot about. You know, um, yeah. they're both black belts, well, uh, but uh, but we don't have to see it too often in uh, jujitsu competitions, at least nogi yeah. and, and whatnot. And, yeah, uh, and has done well. But and because so, of his heavy hands, he just hasn't had to use MMA, it. Yes, I agree with you. Yeah, like Junior Dos Santos hasn't. Right. A lot. Uh, well, I don't know if Dos Santos has actually done any competitions. No, but I'm just saying because of their knockout power, right. that hasn't even no, really hasn't been anything we've seen. But I would still give a slight edge to Glover for the fact that we have at least seen that in tournaments 
without strikes in jiu-jitsu style uh, yeah. format, uh, you know, he is a very proficient uh, black belt in jiu-jitsu. Uh, how that plays over into the octagon, well, like you're saying, because of punching power, we haven't seen. I think that, um, you know, obviously with two guys that hit this hard, uh, the next element I kind of look at that I think is a difference is speed. Mm. I think Anthony is much quicker yeah, uh, and will be able to land his power punches with a little bit more ease than Glover Teixeira is going to be able to. I think Glover is a little bit slower, uh, and I think he probably even actually hits maybe harder, maybe as far as pure punching power, mm-hmm. but not by much. I mean, we're really uh, splitting hairs there as far as who hits harder. Both guys have devastating punching power. Uh, that being said, I think there's a little bit more of a division in speed. Uh, so I think with the two-inch reach advantage that Anthony has and the speed advantage, plus I think he can... If he trained properly for this fight, he could be a multiple prong uh, threat on his feet. Uh, the fact that he was, you know, uh, you know, a national champion. I mean, on a junior college level, out of Lassen, uh, his takedowns will be superior to Glover's, and you know, he could go out there, throw a jab, throw a punch, boom, change levels, take Glover down, maybe you know, one takedown, show that he's capable of doing it. So now the next time he does a level change, Glover has to think, okay, takedowns two. And now defend the punches. Whereas I don't think Anthony has to have his mind set so much on avoiding the double leg or single or you know any kind of changing level shots coming from Glover mm-hmm. uh, specifically. Okay, so so in other words, both guys are a, a serious power threat. Johnson probably has, has a speed advantage there, right? But then if we're talking about what could happen on the ground similarity in the sense that 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 johnson brought a wrestling background to mma and glover brought a jiu-jitsu background neither one of them had to use it that often in their mma career because of their punching power but if it came to it and they had to dust off those those old uh tools and in fact i i guess now that i think about it, i was asking uh anthony johnson about that with his uh his fight with uh with ryan bader because of working with neil melanson and i'd i'd asked uh, Anthony, if he had, you know, working with Neil, if that had uh, kind of resurrected any of the old, you know, wrestling mentality mindsets, grappling mentality. And he said, yeah, he said, you know, that that's been one of the, the great things about working with Neil at the Black Zillions is that even though he's knocking guys out, that, you know, Neil has been able to remind, not only remind him a lot of of his ground past, but also help refine it and maybe get it in his head that everything that's old could be new again and use yeah. some of this stuff. So, so as, as we explore that idea thinking, okay, what if this thing goes to the ground and, and, uh, uh, power punches don't factor in so much. You've got Anthony with that wrestling background. You've got, you've got Glover having submission skills, but when you talk about just ground control, that's generally where the advantage could go to the wrestler, right? Absolutely. And I think that, well, you know, I've rolled with, you know, trained with Neil and, and, and uh, Anthony Johnson's coach, and he's extremely dangerous off his back and very athletic. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, great mobility with his legs, his hips, a very dangerous guard player. Um, so Anthony has learned how to use his wrestling and enhance it to be very good to be on top of a very dangerous black belt in jiu-jitsu. Uh, somebody who I feel is probably more dangerous than Glover to share is off his back. Um, I honestly think that if you tell me that uh, Anthony gets submitted in this fight, it would have to be off of the fact that at some point Anthony shoots a shot and 
Glover th- slaps on a guillotine and is able to finish it. Uh, possibly that would be that. If I had to bet, that's definitely the highest percentage submission that Glover has. All the other submissions to share, I feel, would be better at him being on top of Anthony. Um, that I don't really see happening. Uh, uh, I, I, you know, Anthony, I think if Glover gets on top of him because he's such a heavy puncher, the times I have seen Glover on the ground, uh, he kind of goes into grounder and pound mode. He uses jiu-jitsu as far as his hips and passing to half guard and, and whatnot or looking for the mount. But then he kind of, you know, he, he likes to hit hard. Uh, I think that would be a mistake to do against Anthony because if you take down or if you get on top of a guy who's as good at wrestling as, uh, you know, Anthony Johnson is, uh, you kind of want to smother them and maybe look for a submission and, you know, use some strikes to, you know, soften them up. But if you go for the big shots, uh, that sometimes allows you to lose control. And you lose control of a guy like Anthony, and he's going to hop right back up to his feet. And then you lose the superior position you had, and, you know, and, and now you start over. Odds makers uh, would agree with us. Johnson is a minus 200 going into this fight, and the comeback on Teixeira is a plus 170. So it sounds like both of us are taking Rumble in this one, right? Uh, I am. I feel like I said uh, it wouldn't blow my mind for uh, you know Glover to catch him with a punch. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, both guys very capable of knocking each other out. Uh, but as far as uh, the speed aspect, I think is why I'm going with Anthony and the fact that he really does have more weapons on his feet uh, than Glover does. Uh, Glover to share even his kicks aren't something that strike me as something you have to worry about. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas Anthony Johnson is highlight reel knocked people out with some of his kicks. If he throws a roundhouse up, you better block it and get out of the way. Uh, you know, let that thing slide by. Uh, you don't want to take any of his kicks. And then on top of the takedowns, it's hard not to go with Anthony. Well, the feature bout of the evening is one that I'm also very excited about. Donald Cowboy Cerrone taking on Rick the Horror Story. You know, the magic number for me, Frank, on a pay-per-view card in terms of um, uh, anticipation and appeal and uh, bang for your buck, uh, you know, dollar value, the magic number for me on a main card is three. Meaning that if if I see a pay-per-view card as being what I call a legit three fights deep, and that means an, a fantastic main event, a really awesome co-main event, and a feature bout that at least could headline a fight night card, uh, and, and in this case I think maybe a little bit more, that means it's a pay-per-view, uh, at least on paper, that uh, is not to be missed. And that's how this one's looking to me. When you've got to have Cowboy Cerrone in your, uh, in your third fight on a five-fight fight pay-per-view card, that must mean that spots four and five are pretty damn good. Absolutely. It's a guy that never fails to bring excitement uh, mm-hmm. to the fights. Uh, you know, Rick's story, I think, uh, you know, more soft-spoken and, you know, uh, obviously not the same uh, momentum that, uh, you know, Don- Donald has built up uh, in his career. Uh, still a very, you know, game opponent, uh, you know, very strong wrestler, southpaw with heavy hands, tough guy, good at getting on tr- top, uh, great elbows from the ground and pound. But, uh, you know, this is a fight again, too, that, you know, maybe had this fight been made couple you know six months ago i would have said wow you know it's a lot of size that donald's giving up and i think our last fight you know i said that i'm like ah you know the god man he was fighting uh you know uh, cote and yep. i was like ah 
man, that guy's, that guy's fought at 205 and, and knocks people out. And uh, <laughs> Cerrone showed me that uh, uh, I didn't know what I was talking about. Not only did Cerrone and has he looked great at welterweight, but he got the better of Patrick Cote on the feet right. at welterweight. That was the part that and by I don't think anybody expected. Yeah. It wasn't like he used the little guys and, and caught him coming in. I mean, he no. sit there and took shots, threw them back, and um, it's amazing. I think maybe uh, the I think cutting weight and going down. Uh, you know, uh, give you know it gives him a great advantage. Uh, I think that the faster he is than his opponents, the better he does. I think really now, um, I think speed at times might give Cerrone a harder time because of his style and combinations than power and size does. I think if you're a lumbersome, powerful fighter, I think Cerrone's a bad fight for you because he's throws so many combinations and angles and moves um, that the punches just kind of just come pouring in. And he hits hard. He's able to. He showed. Uh, Corte has uh, been in there with some great strikers. Anderson Silva fought. You know, I think almost two rounds with him before mm-hmm. uh, that fight ended with uh, uh, him tearing an ACL. Uh, he didn't get knocked out. Uh, didn't get picked apart quite as bad as he got picked apart against Donald. So let's look at a couple of things on paper here. First of all, uh, one red flag that comes up is as you and I have talked about before. Cerrone has had trouble with left-handers. Story's a left-hander. Yes. So there is that. Um, Cerrone has, in my opinion, two fights into his welterweight run, overcome that stigma a little bit of being a slow starter. For whatever reason, he seems to be able to start a little faster. And I don't know if that's just coincidental to the move up in weight. I'm sure that's something that he's been wanting to to work on for some time. But but whatever the case, it seems to be at least uh, two fights into his welterweight run, something that he is... Uh, adequately addressing now the the curious thing about story I have is a theory on that now. yeah what is it my theory is that donald i mean i've been in the gym with him and he spars us you know he goes up to the heavyweights mm-hmm. he'll make his rounds with you know uh, he'll spar with john he'll spar with me andre uh, travis whoever the guy you know he'll before even you know he uses us as his warm-up before he goes and spars yeah so i think he felt i think maybe there's a part of his psyche that at 155 he doesn't have that fear of his opponent's power. Not that healthy respect of well, this guy, you know, if he mm. lands one on me, can put me out. So I think that he comes out a little slow. He's like, all right, you know, we're going to work into this. There Get is a no time. I'll yeah, feel you know, this guy I'll out. this guy out, yeah. you know, learn him, see what he's doing. We'll yeah. fake here, move here. Whereas at welterweight, especially some of the guys that he's been fighting at welterweight, mm-hmm. I think he realizes that, well, if these guys land one it could be you know early night loss for me and so i think that he has that healthy respect that turns him on from the opening uh, bell you know as soon as the gate you know the door open boom we see donald taking off i think that it wakes him up to have a little bit healthier of a fear of his opponents maybe at this weight class and not to take away that he didn't respect the power of other guys but i think that you know when you spar and fight as much as he has and stand up and sparring in the gym and you know not only has he you know had mma fights you know where he predominantly wins on his feet but you know the guy has a kickboxing background i think that he's just he grew too comfortable looking across at a guy uh, across the octagon going this guy could knock me out I think that if he would have had that healthy fear, maybe in the Dos Anjos fight, right off the bat and respected his fear, we would have saw a little bit more urgency that we see now. I mean, the Patrick Cote fight, he came out right off the bat, I think. And my theory on that is that he knew that, well, if Cote comes and jumps on me early, 
It could be an early night. So in turn, he's ready as soon as the the, uh, the opening buzzer. That's an interesting theory. I hadn't thought about that. It's, um, you know, one thing with uh, Rick's story, and this is kind of the big uh, the big question mark about story, is he looked great against Tarek Safadine a couple of months ago, but before that he had been out two full years. So can you tell just from that one fight uh, – what story, you know, is is story back? Did that answer uh, all the questions? I mean, I, I kind of think it did because it was a three-round fight and it was a unanimous decision. It's not like uh, it was Dominic Cruz's return where he knocked out Takeya Mizugaki. I mean, he looked great doing it, but that was a, that fight was over with very, very quickly. Right. You didn't have time to gauge a lot. Uh, story, uh, by the way, worked with Neil Melanson for that fight. Uh, speaking of Neil, uh, and he kind of got with him last minute, as I as I recall. I, I don't remember exactly why, what the circumstances were around uh, getting uh, hooked up with with uh, Neil Melanson for for kind of an abbreviated uh, camp run this last time around. But but it was short. I remember that because uh, I talked to Rick in the the uh, post fight uh, press conference at that uh, UFC Fight Night card in uh, that was in uh, Vegas here. The, memorial day weekend i guess it was and uh he said yeah he was definitely hoping to work with with neil again and i'm assuming that's the case i don't know whether it is or not um but so story has only been submitted one time and he's never been ko'd the only person that submitted him is damian maya so okay again now yeah, Danny and Maya can pretty much run the gauntlet yeah. with everybody in the UFC. So, so we're talking about. I mean, it's kind of like what we we're saying about Nate Diaz. And this is like, you know, that's that's how hard you are to finish if if you've got one submission on your record. And uh, Damian Maya was the guy that's done it, especially to have that's never been KO'd. Now, what does Story have uh, success with? Well, he has uh, he has success with pressuring early, like kind of trying to run his opponent toward the cage. You know, land body shots break them down, uh, weaken them. And that is something that Donald Cerrone has had some struggles with. The aforementioned Nate Diaz, the Rafael Dos Anjos fight, as quickly as that ended. I mean, that was Dos Anjos' recipe uh, to defeat Cerrone. So he's known for this. So my question is, I guess it's a two-part question. Can Rick Story do that versus can Donald Cerrone make a fast start for himself uh use heavier hands and create a problem for uh for the more i guess you would say stationary story because he's not a guy who's bobbing and weaving with no he doesn't really move his head that much at all yeah he keeps his hands kind of you know very uh you know uh uh very mechanical almost yeah. as far as this, if i can give a description um uh, you know does everything you know right i can't sit there and say well you know the guy does this wrong it's great, you know, as far as uh, his fundamentals seem very strong. But as far as being able to bob and move out of some of the combinations that Donald's going to be throwing at him, I think he's going to have a hard time if he stands toe-to-toe with uh, Cerrone. I think if I was Rick Story's uh, coach, or again, if we're talking about Rick Story getting his arm raised on Saturday night, we talk about how he did it, is that he has to make this ugly. Yeah. He has to maul Cerrone. Uh, they open up the bell. As soon as they get within, you know, striking distance, one jab, you know, I mean, kind of cover up and rush and see if you can drive behind a punch or two, uh, Donald to the cage, even eating a shot or two. But 
if you do eat a shot or two, make sure that at the end of it, you you have Donald pressed up against the octagon, against the cage. Now you can smother him and wear on him, and he is the bigger guy, and maybe he can try to break him down and, and hopefully uh, uh, you know, slow down the, the elusiveness and, and, and combinations of immobility that really Donald brings to the uh, octagon. Uh, as far as going out there and just trying to straight strike with Donald in the open area, I see that as a bad night for Rick. I, I, like I said, if uh, if Rick wants to win the fight, he has to just, it's not going to be pretty, but he has to find a way to, you know, whatever way he's capable of driving, uh, you know, uh, Donald to the cage. And I don't think it's by level changing and taking a shot. Donald's actually has a very, you know, pretty decent sprawl. Uh, you know, the way he keeps his feet together, you know, is able to kind of move and elusively, you know, keep out from guys changing levels. Plus, he throws some pretty wicked knees and kicks. So putting your face and bringing it towards his hips sometimes is not the most uh, comforting idea. Uh, but, you know, going more of a Greco type clinch. I think uh, I think that if Rick Story wants to uh, be successful in this fight, uh, I would take a page out of uh, Randy Couture type of fighting playbook where uses striking to get in close clinch smother hang on the head get a you know an underhook a body lock Mm -hmm. drive him against the cage elbow and beat him up there and wear him down and and try to rip him down and if he does take him down make sure the takedowns occur against the cage where he can use the cage as a uh, you know another uh, uh, an adversary or you know uh, you know uh, another uh, um, uh, variable in the fight Mm -hmm. to where now it jams up Cerrone who's very good off his back with triangles and submissions and but I mean the best of jiu-jitsu guys if you smother them the properly block their hips against the cage while they're on the ground you can really uh, do well yeah and we haven't talked about Cerrone's submission game Uh, he's got 15 submissions and I actually I like Cerrone in this fight and I think, even though uh, Story has only been submitted one time by the likes of Damian Maya, that the the win could be a submission finish for Donald Cerrone if he's able to soften Story up with those kicks, with the strikes, elbows, get the better of him in that. Well, weaken Story him. is not a really high-output fighter. Yeah. Um, all the fights I've seen of him, it's not striking me as somebody that I think once he takes you down, the elbows can come with frequency and the tenacity yeah. of being on top. But as far as on his feet, he's not throwing a lot of shots. So if he gets into a striking battle with Donald, I can see him getting tired just by trying to keep up. You know, it's like trying to keep pace with the rabbit. Yeah. Know, bad idea. I feel like if Cerrone can win uh, the, the striking battle, and then if that fight does go to the ground, just based on the, the caliber of uh, submission specialists that, or maybe I should say the lack of that story has faced with the exception, obviously, of Damian Maya, uh, who's got the submission win over him, I think maybe uh, maybe Story wins it that way. How do you like the fight? So you mean Cerrone wins it that I'm way? I'm sorry, Cerrone wins the fight yeah, that way. Yeah, and I can see that too. If uh, Cerrone is able to, you know, if let's say, you know, uh, uh, very plausible. Rick Story's hurt, you know, on his feet. He's able to, you know, crush in and get, you know, uh, Cerrone to the cage. But Cerrone's able to get his back away from it, and maybe does get the takedown. You know, Rick Story does, but they're out in open waters. Uh, I've rolled with Donald. Uh, the guy's a black belt in jujitsu. Uh, very mobile. Very uh, able to, you know, his triangle is dangerous. Uh, you know, if you put your hands on the mat, he'll snap up a Kimura very easily. Go for the guillotine. Uh, he is very aggressive with submissions from that area. So uh, Rick can't take him down and expect to just, uh, you know, have a guy now who's looking to get up. Actually, 
Donald uses the fact that he's trying to take, you know, choke you out and you pull away from a submission is kind of the way he likes to get up. You flee from a, you know, a triangle and give him space. Well, now his hips pop out and he's back up to his feet. Also on the uh, main portion of the card, uh, Mike Perry, who uh, is an undefeated fighter, but I guess making his UFC debut. I've got that correct, is uh, taking on Hyung Yu Lim, uh, Lim, a uh, welterweight fighter out of uh, South Korea, 13-5-1. and one. Uh, I, don't, I, I, I don't know much about Mike Perry or exactly how he ended up in this, uh, in this situation to be uh, opening the uh, uh, main portion of the card. Although, you know, originally this fight card was going to have... Um, Damian Maya and Carlos Condit on it. That was going to be one of the uh, main card fights. And then what happened was um, they pulled them off of that and they moved them off to uh, a ca- uh, card in Canada, I guess, to uh, uh, save a main event up there. Uh, Mike Perry, uh, by the way, not only an undefeated fighter, but uh, all six of his victories have come by way of knockout. So, uh, and all of them have either been in the first or the second round. Yeah, he's, I'm looking at his record now. He's, um, he's fought, uh, fought his last fight back in May, uh, for a promotion called Battleground. He's fought in Square Ring Promotions, Island Fights 37, Premier FC 18, the Premier Fighting Championship, House of Fame 3, Riverside Beatdown. Any of these ringing a bell, Frank? No. Any <laughs> opponents ringing a bell? Uh, no. Uh, let's see. David Mundell, Frank Carrillo, John Manley, Preston Parsons, James Rodriguez, and Hector Tiardo. No. So, no. But... He has knocked every one of those guys out, like well, I said, either in the first or the second round at, uh, at welterweight. That bodes well for him as far as, you know, again, uh, I haven't seen any video on the guy. Yeah. So it's hard for me to give any kind of, you know, legitimate, uh, you know, breakdown. But just hearing the record, knowing the situation, making his debut, um, he's done what a high-level fighter should do on a smaller show. But that doesn't mean now that when he comes up to the UFC that it's going to stay that way. Uh, the good thing is, is he's not fighting, you know, one of the top five guys, you know, at welterweight and, uh, you know, and, and, and limb, but at the same time, he's fighting a guy who's not his first fight in the UFC. He's been in there, been in long fights, uh, you know, five round fights. Uh, and so yeah. a lot of rounds for limb. Uh, so, you know, there is that advantage that he's going to have where Perry's coming in there with the first, you know, first UFC jitters, which has gotten some pretty high level guys, uh, in trouble in the past. This will actually be Lim's uh, fifth fight, sixth fight, sixth fight in uh, the UFC. And uh, he's got uh, his most notable opponents are losses, uh, losses he had to Tarek Safadine, and then uh, fairly recently back in May, a loss to Neil Magny, who is also on that card. But that's going to round out the uh, main portion of the card. Now, uh, Cody Garbrandt, no love, is taking on Takeya Mizugaki. I, I think they may have reshuffled this to make this part of the main card as well. Let me 
check on that real quick and see if they've uh, got that. No, they've they've uh, the Tim Means fight is going to open up the main card. There you go. So uh, Cody Nolove and Takei Mizugaki will be the featured fight on the FS1 prelims. You know they do that now. It's used to. You know, you could say, oh, okay, well, you, you get five fights on the main card, and if you're not on the main card, then it's a demotion to be on the prelims. But not if you're in that that main slot of the prelims, even on Fight Pass now. I mean, yes. they're making that a marquee spot. So Cody Nolove, uh, one of uh, the hottest fighters going out of Team Alpha Male, brings his 9-0 and undefeated record back to the octagon against Takeya Mizugaki. Uh, Garbrandt has only gone the distance one time. He had that spectacular first round knockout over Thomas Almeida back on uh, Memorial Day, headlining the uh, UFC Fight Night card here in uh, Las Vegas. Uh, a guy that brought a very impressive amateur boxing record, thirty-two and one, to his uh, his mixed martial arts career. Uh, Mizugaki, of course, is a veteran. Uh, out of his twenty-one wins, he's had five KOs, one submission, and fifteen decisions. So that's a difference that jumps out right away. Garbrandt only going the distance once, and uh, uh, and Mizugaki getting uh, basically uh, right about 75% of his wins via decision. Out of his nine losses, he's been KO'd twice and subbed twice. So you've got to wonder if if the first thing he's uh, got to be thinking is can he drag uh, Cody Garbrandt into deep waters? Well, and I think uh, you know on the surface that's very much of a veteran idea. Mm-hmm. You're fighting the young and upcoming uh, Cody Garbrandt, who's great knockout power, uh, trains with a great team, very explosive, but has yet to have anybody test him in deep waters. If I was Mizugaki, it's not a bad idea to you know come out and you know you're trying to win the first round, but in the back of your mind. You're hoping to, you know, go ahead and get this to the second round, see if you can drown him, and then maybe in the third round really just, you know, lay it on, and let's see what Cody Garbrandt is going to do uh, if the fight goes that far. Uh, I think Mizugaki is a very solid uh, fighter. Uh, I think, you know, he, you know, brings a lot to the table, but it's right now it's hard for me to, you know, really go against Cody. I think that after the performances I've seen him put on, uh, he seems to be very dangerous. Uh, everything you want to have going for you as a fighter, uh, talent, ability, work ethic, uh, a team surrounding you that's going to make you better, Cody Garbrandt has. And I think that, uh, I think that the guys uh, keep moving on up the division. I think this is just another test of his abilities. Uh, it's a solid opponent. I think that, uh, you know, a win here for uh, Michigaki could put him back on the map as far as buying for uh, another run at the title. But I think this is uh, I think this is really Cody Garbrandt's fight to really solidify uh, for a title challenge. Yeah, I think so too. And 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 I think what could be a far more likely outcome than the one I mentioned first, which was Mizugaki taking uh, Garbrandt into late rounds, is Garbrandt executing uh, a, a similar plan like uh, Dominic Cruz did against Mizugaki. I mean, this fight could actually end pretty quickly the way that a lot of Garbrandt's fights have. And I think that's one of the reasons, Frank, that a lot of people are already hypothesizing about what a Garbrandt-Cruz match, matchup, could look like. And if Garbrandt were to have uh, a similar success against Mizugaki Saturday night that Cruz had, that'll just add fuel to the fire. I think anytime, you know, a lot of people obviously don't do the MMA math and you can't necessarily tell things by common opponents, but 
if uh, you do have circumstances where you have very similar outcomes against that opponent, sometimes I think that makes that future matchup a little more exciting because Absolutely. you feel like a very similar style of fighter. Right. You know, you go out there and uh, let's say Cody Zuba to walk out there and knock out Mizugaki in the first minute of this fight. You sit there and go, well, you know who else has been the only other guy really to do that to Mizugaki? Yeah. Our current champion. Yeah. Um, what would happen if you two face each other? Yeah. Uh, I think that gives him a great momentum, the young guy coming forward, getting a great devastating win over a, uh, a veteran like Mizugaki. I think it catapult him into uh, maybe his very next fight being you know, a very uh, strong uh, uh, claim for a title shot. Two women's fights are on the card. Raquel Pennington is returning to win women's bantamweight action, taking on Elizabeth Phillips. Both of those ladies coming off of victories. Uh, Pennington's recent victory was over Betch Correa, split decision back in April, and Elizabeth Phillips defeated a Jessamine Duke via unanimous decision. Gosh, she's been out of action a while. That was back in, that was a year ago. Uh, Elizabeth Phillips has been out. So this is, uh, this is, uh, what's been going on? Is she had an injury? I'm not sure about what's been going on with Elizabeth Phillips, but anyway, she's, uh, been out of action for a while. So she will be making her return. Uh, also, uh, Artem Lobov out of Ireland. That's a Conor McGregor training partner. Uh, usually where Conor fights, you, you see at least one or two of those campmates turn up, uh, on the card and, uh, the Russian hammer, uh, will be, uh, fighting in a lightweight battle against Chris, uh, Vila. Who's fighting out of Stockton. So is this a, a training partner versus training partner? Oh, you know what? I did not notice that about Chris Avila. Very interesting. All right. We have to find that out. Little, Is Chris Avila uh, a partner of uh, down there with the Diaz brothers? Yeah, that is. Uh, you know what? If if that is what happened, uh, credit to the UFC That's for doing cool. that. I like that. When the, but then also to a uh, kind of a missed opportunity and dropped ball, uh, not highlighting that more. Well, yeah, that's true. Unless they're doing it, you know what? I haven't really, uh, I haven't really caught. Yeah, as a matter of fact, uh, he is a teammate of Nate Diaz. Um, you know, I, I haven't really caught up on all my uh, UFC embeddeds and countdowns and stuff like that this uh, this week. So maybe there is something that talks about that. Well, I've been out in the mountains, so that's my excuse. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, Avila is a protege of the Diaz brothers. This is very, I like it when the toadies fight each other. Yeah. You know what I mean? No, I yeah. really do too. My sidekick uh, will fight your sidekick Honestly, while we're warming up. did not spark any interest in me. Yeah. Uh, you know, if it's on, I'm going to watch because yeah. I like fighting for the sake of fighting. Yeah. But uh, now this has special interest. It would be like if I fought Brian Callen. Yes. <laughs> Me and Brendan are going at it, you know? <laughs> Well, you guys are getting warmed up. Right. <laughs> that could happen. Stranger things have happened. Let me I say. I think most likely at this point it'll be a, uh, a stand-up duel. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Let's see here. So, uh, all right. That's very intriguing then. Uh, Random Marcos, uh, this, the second ladies fight uh, on the card, strawweight battle. Random Marcos is taking on Courtney Casey. Uh, Marcos coming off a win over Jocelyn Jones-Libar who, by the way, I'm pretty sure is a listener to our show. 
I see Jocelyn Jones Lieberger. She like I know she follows us on our uh, uh, Instagram at Phone Booth Fighting because she's always liking our photos. And uh, I think she might listen to the show too. So Jocelyn, if you're listening, uh, hello and thanks for liking our photos on Instagram. And uh, Randa is a pretty intense. Uh, fight. Did you watch any of her Ultimate Fighter season? Did you see any of that? The women's strawweight season. I try to only watch the fights. Yeah. Yeah, it yeah I understand. It was uh, it was interesting. Uh, Randa was uh, she's got an interesting heritage. It's like she's from uh, Canada, but her family. She was actually born in Iraq, and I believe her her family were kind of like Iraqi refugees and came to Canada and everything. So she has like a, I think uh, if I recall correctly, like uh, there was a. Um, you know, a, a real priority placed on her in like in her family on education and things like that. You know, kind of a serious right. family, and right, uh, through some hardships. Oh, for sure. But she's a very. I remember that from seeing her on the show. I mean, she's uh, and I've interviewed her before. She's nice, but just a you can just tell she's a great psyche for a fighter. I mean, intense focus, not a lot of uh, no laid back uh, jokes being not not a lot of nonsense uh, going on. No. Um, now, for uh, Courtney Casey's part, this will be her. Uh, this will actually be her third fight inside the octagon, uh, starting off in the UFC with a pair of losses, and uh, most recently a victory over uh, Christina Stanclu at uh, UFC Fight Night ninety one. That was just back uh, last month, so she's getting back in there very quickly. All right, uh, let's. Uh, do this rounding out the uh, card on the prelims. Now, this is one that I'm interested in uh, for sure. Neil Magny and Lorenz Larkin at uh, welterweight. Magny uh, is uh, really one of the busiest fighters going these days. Magny tied the record back in 2014 for most wins in a calendar year with uh, five. Roger Huerta also holds that record with him. Uh, Magny uh, is on a three-fight win streak over the likes of Hector Lombard, Kelvin Gastelum, and Eric Silva. Uh, before that, he lost a fight to Damian Maya, and that fight snapped a seven-fight win streak. I think Neil Magny, over the last couple of years, has been one of the, quietly, one of the most accomplished fighters in really all of the UFC, but certainly the welterweight division. Also a well-rounded fighter. Five wins by knockout, three wins by submission, he's going to have a pretty serious reach advantage over the monsoon Lorenz Larkin, uh, eight inches to be exact, and he'll be a little bit of a taller fighter as well. Lorenz is a guy who uh, a couple of fights ago moved to welterweight. He's been undefeated uh, at the 170-pound limit, 2-0. and He's just been, even though both these guys have almost identical uh, records 16 or 18 and 5 with Magny and 17 and 5 with Larkin. Larkin's been the more inconsistent of the two, I think. Uh, Magny, for whatever reason, has just come on so strong in uh, the last couple of years of, of his career and has really been on uh, a pretty incredible run. Yeah, it's hard for me right now to bet against Neil Magny in this mm-hmm. fight, especially just specifically nothing against Larkin, but just really that fight with Hector Lombard. Uh, I knew that Neil Magny was a talent and, and, and very good as far as well-rounded striker, grappler on the ground with submissions ability. But in that fight to survive that first round flurry that he took from Hector, yeah, um, 
not many guys, I think, at welterweight are are going to be able to put out that kind of uh, intensity. And so he not only did he absorb that and survive that, he came back strong and and turned it around and in devastating fashion. Won that fight in the very next round, where. Uh, I thought the fight could have been stopped easily. You know what? I had uh, forgotten was, about that. Yes, yes cuz that was hard. I was in the yeah. back room watching this fight. Yeah. Here I'm going up. Well, you know, cuz Hector is in my room and yeah. there's always that superstition where you're in the back blue corner, red corner, the guy, yeah. you know, how's our room doing, you know? Uh-huh. And Hector and I are in the same room and uh Hector also being, you know, of Cuban descent, you know, uh, something that, you know, we're sharing in common and and so uh you know, I was like, man, Hector has this fight won. And then all of a sudden you see Neil come back. And honestly, uh, I wanted the fight to get stopped in the second round. I'm like, yeah. oh, they need to stop this. Yeah. You know, what are they doing to poor Hector? You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like at this point, not even like uh, so much in favor of Neil Magny, but more out of sympathy for, you know, hey, that guy has to have, a, you know, he's going to fight another day. You know, he lost this one, but let's call it a night. Uh, so much to the point where, uh, you know, afterwards I saw Hector in the hospital and uh, I was very kind of a little upset the fight went that long. I was mm-hmm. like, yeah, you know what? You took a lot more abuse than probably you should have had to take it. And I don't say that many times. You know, I want to fight, you know, I feel more times often than not fights are stopped way too early. It's very rare that I've ever seen a fight where I'm like, oh, I, you know, let's stop this. And uh, that ranks up there with in my memory is right off the bat. You tell me of a fight that you think should have been stopped a little bit You're earlier. Right. You're right. I'll tell you right off the bat. Oh, you know, Magni Lombard. That's a fight that should have been stopped. That was the fight. If if I'm not getting them mixed up, that is the fight where uh, who's the uh, who's the British referee? Mark Goddard. Yes. Mark, if, if memory serves. I believe this was the fight where Mark Goddard was seated, you know, when because the referees all, you know, uh, rotate, yeah, rotate, rotate yeah. fights. But when they're not refing, they're, you see them seated, cage side, right, right, waiting for their next turn or whatever. And you could see this the way the, the camera position was set up when, when uh, Lombard was taking that beating and everybody was screaming for the fight to be stopped. Now I'm trying to remember who the referee was. Yeah, I don't thing. remember either. Um, but. Uh, I re- you could see Goddard on television in the background, like with his hands on his head. I mean, like, yeah. what is going on? We couldn't hide the fact. Yeah, that. I mean, when you've got another referee doing yeah. that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm positive that that referee was spoken to afterwards. Yeah. Uh, because uh, uh, it wasn't like he gave Hector a chance. Hector barely survived the second round. Yeah. Uh, due to the fact that it should have been stopped and it wasn't. And then he had to endure more punishment, and, and and thankfully the fight didn't last very much into the third round, and uh, it was uh, it was definitely uh, an impressive uh, feat to know how that fight went, to know how it started, because as bad as it was looking for uh, Lombard, it almost was looking that bad for Magni. In fact, there was no, a couple points in that fight yeah. that I wouldn't have argued if they would have stopped it in favor of Hector in the first round. Um, but I'm, you know, obviously, you know, they let it go long enough that he was able to survive and come through. Uh, it was, you know, he was definitely in that first round. Neil Magny was teetering on the brink of uh, uh, of defeat. The referee, by the way, was the uh, Australian native Steve Percival. Oh, okay. Yeah, that was him. Well, you know, I'm glad, you know, he, <laughs> I say I'd rather fight, you know, referees err on the side of letting a fight go a little bit too long. 
uh, I just don't want you know. But then there's that way too long. No, this one You're like, was, oh come no, on, no, this dude. one. Like, I, please. No, I, I remember us uh, talking about the fact that I thought this was one of uh, the ones that came to mind as far as I, I gauge it by how long I had to yell at the TV to stop it. You know what I mean? Like how long was that conversation with my TV yeah. about stopping it? And as I pull well, this, as I pull this record up now, I was going to see uh, who the referee was and it was Steve Percival. What you're talking about is uh, there was 90 second from the, from the point that there was 90 seconds left in the second round, uh, that's when Magny mounted Lombard and hit him with over 100 unanswered strikes. Uh, you can't do that. I mean, and before that, uh, he was in an arm bar that he really had to fight out of mm-hmm. that was tight. And uh, Lombard is a judo uh, champion, you know, high-level judo player, and obviously, you know, familiar with arm bars and getting out, and he, he was in an arm bar. Uh, mm-hmm. Neil Magny slapped one on him that was damn near close to breaking his arm off, and he survived it and got out, but due to a lot of energy and just raw uh, horsepower and just testicular fortitude on the part of Hector Lombard. But to add to this case, um, I wouldn't have been very uh, upset, and uh, I probably would have at that point as a second in that fight if I was in Hector Lombard's corner. I don't know if I would have sent him out for the third round. I yeah. think that at the point that watching what we just watched in the second round, I get my student and my you know my fighter on that stool. I'm not, you know you look at him and you can see that he's spent, he's done, and you have a guy who's only getting stronger on the other side. Hey, you know what? Let's mark it off as a loss. Tonight's not our night. Let's go back with our health, mm-hmm. try to improve as a fighter, and and have a life outside the octagon. Um, you call it, you know, uh, and I'm not quick to do that type of stuff, but had his corner thrown the towel in, you know, yeah. uh, at that point, I think extremely justified. That's one good thing about there only being one round in Naga. I won't have to have to argue with you about not throwing in the towel before the second round. Yes. Do, do, I can do it. Cut, I can do uh, it. Cut him. Yeah. Cut me. <laughs> I can't see you. Cut him. <laughs> like, why is he calling me Mick? Uh, and then uh, uh, a couple of fights kicking off the uh, fight past prelims, uh, welterweight fight, Colby Covington and Max Griffin, and then uh, Alberto Yuda and Marvin Vittori will uh, fight it out at middleweight. This card's solid, man. I like this. It's got, I mean, Magni and Larkin is a great featured fight for uh, the UFC fight pass prelims, and then uh, you got the uh, the matchup of the training partners, uh, and uh, then of uh, Diaz and uh, McGregor with Lobov and Avila, and then uh, the ladies Pennington and Phillips, and then uh, Garbrandt and Mizugaki are uh, featuring on that uh, Fox Sports One uh, portion of the prelims, and then as I said, that uh, that pay per view card is a legit uh, three fights deep between the main, the co-main, and the feature bout. So. Saturday night. Looking forward to it. Just wish yeah. it wasn't at the T-Mobile Arena. <laughs> Have I given you my critique of the beautiful T-Mobile Arena? You've given it to me, but feel free to go ahead and give it to our fans. It's too big. Yeah. It's too big. Let me tell you folks something about fights. All right? Let, 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 let old Richard tell you a little something about watching fights. Man, I've watched I, a lot of fights agree in my with life. You. Okay? A fight should not take place in an arena, I think, that seats more than right around 10,000, give or take. Uh, I'm okay with 
seventeen thousand. I think is my top where I feel really. Yeah, that's uh, about the high end because I mean MGM Mandalay Bay. Some of the fights I've been in, seventeen thousand. Know? Can you get that many in Mandalay Bay? Uh, I thought that's much closer to maybe MGM eleven or twelve or maybe something. yeah they're closer to twelve. I'm thinking yeah. MGM. Uh, I mean ten to twelve, whenever somewhere around in that neighborhood, yeah. and the the it it differs sometimes depending on whether you're in an arena for like a hockey game or a fight True. or whatever. You get a couple more thousand people in, but to me, it's got to be much closer to ten thousand than it does twenty thousand. Oh, absolutely. When you start okay. getting much closer. To that, I think you're right. Then I guess now talking numbers and just more, I guess giving it a little bit more deeper thought. Yeah. You're right. Thirteen thousand, fourteen thousand is probably the top that you want to get to where at that point. Well, I remember going. You know, I, I flew to Canada because it was Randy Couture's last fight, mm-hmm. uh, uh, fighting uh, uh, Machida. Uh, yes, Lyoto. And uh, oh, was this on the uh, the GSP Jake Shields? Yes. Was that, okay, yeah. That the, fight wasn't as exciting, but yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, the stadium show. Yeah, so we're in a stadium, and yeah. I'm in VIP seating, and I'm looking. I'm like, I look back behind me. I'm like, all right, I have a very poor view of the octagon. I'm so far back. Uh, how is anybody who's five times farther back than I am really looking at the octagon? Yeah. At this point, you showed up to be surrounded with fellow fight fans to really watch a prompter. Yeah. And in my mind... It's hard to get to the cocktail waitress, hard to get to the fridge when you're sitting in a room like that. So I would rather at that point, if we're going to not have a, you know, a more intimate setting as a fight, I'm like, if you're just going to watch it on the prompter, why not watch it at home? No, Television's I, close. Beer's close. Uh, I, I get it. You know, I'm very fortunate in that I've gotten to see as many fights as I've, I've gotten to see. And I'm, I'm, I, obviously, I make them all here in uh, in Vegas with a, a press credential. But I, I get why if you've never been to a fight before, I mean, you should go just so you can say you've been oh, at one. I totally get that. Cool. Even if even if you've got the you know the worst seat in the house or whatever, you're still going to have that singular memory. So I'm, I'm not discounting that. But I'm, I'm speaking more along the lines of like being from Dallas. Um, people have been saying for years. When is the UFC going to go to Cowboy Stadium? Yeah. When are they going to have a big Cowboy Stadium show? Bad let, idea. Let me tell you something. I saw Manny Pacquiao fight in Cowboy Stadium. I had. Well, and they're doing the next uh, Cotto, or not Cotto, uh, Canelo. Oh, is that right? Are they doing that there? Yeah. And it, it, it probably was, and my seats were probably kind of what you were just describing with like VIP seating and everything. I mean, I had a. a well, a yeah. Press row sits right. pretty close. I mean, right. the only difference is that. We're on one side of the octagon yeah. as the fighters and VIP yeah. seating and special guests. You look across, you guys are right up on the octagon and, and yeah. then sitting back, you know, seven or eight rows. But it was still so huge. And it was so, they had that giant jumbo tron thing in there like the world's largest hd television or whatever that this thing yeah, yeah. they've got inside cowboy stadium and and even with you know better seats than probably 90 percent of the people in the stadium those people in the top 10 percent are are still very inclined to just look up at that giant yeah. screen because you're not talking about something that's the length of a football field or even for that no, you're not having somebody go for a 90 yard no or, or even a basketball court or a hockey rink you're talking about you know something that proportionally speaking if you're up in the rafters is the size of a postage stamp with two little ants dancing on it and so i anybody who clamors for that just know that i guess you're going to get to say that you were there and you were a part of it but if you're really talking about a rewarding viewing experience 
that's not going to be that. Well, and you uh, being such a boxing uh, factionado and uh, kind of historian, I mean, I bring up fights, and I've been with other guys with boxing backgrounds that bring up fights that I'm not aware of. We were sitting there with um, oh Adam Carolla, father, yeah, and uh, he was. You guys were having a conversation, and I was like, "Shit, man, let me grab my phone and Google what the hell you guys are talking yeah. about." I don't know who the guys that you're bringing <laughs> you know, up. The right old now. Mike Weaver and yeah, uh, you know, the old boxers, and yeah. so. Uh, I've seen old photos of them, even going back to like the Dempsey days where they don't have prompters for people to view and you see the background. I'm like, how many thousands of people were there? Yeah. You have those guys that basically showed up. I'm like, can you even tell who's winning? Like you just see mm-hmm. two little tiny ants going at it. Like you can't really see much, you know? I think yeah. it was uh, the uh, luxury or the the novelty of saying I was there mm-hmm. without really the, uh, you know, I wondered at that point... Did they have radios out there in the crowd to try to listen in on at least mm-hmm. the, the 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 play-by-play? I mean, because okay. at this point, like you said, if you do go ahead and shell out, you know, uh, one of the uh, entry-level tickets, and you're sitting in a nosebleeds yeah. at a you know thirty-five thousand seated arena, like I think it was the Bell Center, is uh, where that fight in uh, Canada with. Uh, was it the Bells? Or oh, the Shields GSP, right? Uh, Whatever the stadium uh, is, that, up that there, one yeah. only held like thirty-five thousand. No, it's only, but it was an ungodly amount of people, and you couldn't see nothing. But you had the uh, advantage of looking up at a a, uh, the uh, uh, prompters up above you, so you at least could be in on the fight. You just you know you're watching the fight with thirty thousand other fight fans, whereas you could be at home watching it with ten fight fans. but the old time fights, I wonder. It's like you, you see some of those things. Like I've, I've seen old stills of Jack Johnson and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And you look in the background. You know, I'll look at the picture and go, "Wow, how do those guys like even see anything?" And so we're you, talking all the way up to. I mean, did in Muhammad Ali, Joe Frazier, they didn't have any kind of uh, replay jumbotrons, jumbotrons up like there. That, I mean, no. that's a more recent development. So okay, so so here's here's a little boxing history on on that stuff. When they traveled so for example you know the rumble in the jungle and stuff like this when you know foreman and ali are fighting in uh in, in africa and all that kind of stuff it was um yeah it was uh those, those were in big soccer stadiums and everything and yeah i mean you could technically probably be in that arena and not be able to make anything out um but when the fights were in vegas you know, back before they had MGM and they had Mandalay Bay, Caesars, they used right? to set up temporary uh, situation outdoors at yes. Caesars. When I was a kid, I would watch boxing uh, on from Caesars that was like outdoor, you know, bleacher setup. I mean, really, even when I was a kid, I remember. Um didn't George Foreman and Michael Moore, when they fought for the heavyweight title at Caesars? Is that right? I think I it was know. outdoors, yeah, too. I, if I, I mean, I remember the fight. I just don't remember the location. I, I believe it was an outdoor yeah. fight also. So that's what they would do before they had the, you know, the, the 10, 11, 12,000, whatever it is, uh, MGM and uh, Mandalay Bay arenas set up for fights. And then when they would go on the, you know, when they would be outside of Vegas, it would be much bigger venues. This is one thing that I really liked about, I say liked past tense because it's about to change. What I really liked about Las Vegas not having any major sports franchises because it didn't have a major sports arena. 
that's what's happened now is the up, up to this point the MGM and uh, Mandalay Bay were the biggest bit venues available the casinos pay huge site fees to get these fights if yes. you don't know the business of this stuff the reason that a lot of times these fights will happen in Las Vegas in you know could you not have had Floyd Mayweather and Manny Pacquiao fight in a venue much much bigger than uh, the MGM Grand sure you could oh, could you imagine if you had that fight in the Philippines sure you could have what but, kind of arena could you have filled right but the deal is there's a lot of money involved in having them fight at MGM because Floyd Mayweather has a deal with MGM and right. the casinos pay these giant site fees because they want all these people showing up and gambling all their life savings away so right. there's there's a whole lot of things that go on behind the scenes to factor into the financials that don't just have to do with the price of the ticket but that being said now that uh the t-mobile arena has been built here you've got uh a hockey an nhl hockey franchise coming have they named it yet no not yet uh you know and then of course rumors that the raiders could be coming here in football and all because i'm so i'm hoping for yeah it's just like once you be able to just go down the street and take my kids to a pro football yeah it's just once you get that kind of stuff started particularly with the t-mobile arena with the hockey and then if you were to have basketball or something like that it it's too easy at that point to just go, well, you know, if this fight can sell 12,000 tickets, then I guess it can sell 20,000 or, you know, whatever yeah. the max is. But uh, it's just not going to be the best viewing experience. No, so. I think you give up quality. And, and I don't know if it's so much for financial gain as is maybe, I mean, I'm sure it is for financial gain. I mean, uh, you're in the business of promoting fights. Yeah. You want money. Uh, you're not into doing it just for the. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's not a. Uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for when you do things uh, generously? Uh, what's you know people like uh, altruistically? Uh, more or less philanthropically. Yes. Uh, thank you. And I'm not even able to pronounce that word, but that's what I read all the time, and my, my brain wants to think. That's what I'm going to name my two kids if I ever have kids. <laughs> so there we go. At least I said the type of person that does that type of work. <laughs> Anyways. Um, I wonder if you have like a UFC 200 and this UFC 202 where I know they're big cards, you know, obviously UFC 200 is what it was on its own. And then, you know, you have, you know, 202 because of Connor being the juggernaut of a draw that he is. I wonder how much of its ego to put it in this huge arena. And it's not just, yeah. well, you know, one of our biggest oh, cards are for sure. no, has I, to be at the biggest venue mm-hmm. in Vegas. It's no. like, well, I mean, but is it really for the best? No, I, I think that, and I think that has a lot to do too with you know uh, Connor wanting to uh, take a fight over to Ireland. In that, there was talking about that Crow Park, I think it's called, right. wherever the big soccer thing right, right. is over there. I mean, that'd probably be another very similar experience. But I, in, at well, least in that you know, sense, in I, that situation, it wouldn't bother me as much because you. The people there would have a very hard time ever coming to a that's live concert. Yeah, fight. no, I'm, I'm with so, you. Yeah, yeah, so I agree. Yeah, you were leading there. I'd cut you yeah. off. I apologize. No, but that's that I see. But here in yeah. Vegas, even on the part of me just making money, I'm like, well, I have less. You know, how much does T-Mobile seat? I, you know, let me look it up. I think it's closer to to twenty thousand. I think okay. we might be talking about like eighteen thousand. So you or have something. a T-Mobile arena that fits that many, and or you have an MGM where you know uh, fits. You know, obviously uh, less. Mm-hmm. Um, you can just raise the price of the tickets and still make up the difference in money because of the drive and desire. I mean, simple uh, uh, business in supply and demand. The mm-hmm. higher the demand, you know, the, the more you can, uh, you know. Uh, 20000 20000 20000 for an MMA event. Yeah. What is the potential, though? Uh, Twenty thousand is the max for uh, basketball. It would be eighteen thousand. 
uh, hockey, it would be seventeen five, huh. and concerts uh, can seat all the way up to twenty thousand. So as too. far as like huge arenas go, T-Mobile is not huge. Uh, it's well, it's it's. Well, it's I mean, I'm thinking of Cowboys, you know. Yeah, but those are stadiums. Stadiums. This is about so as big T-Mobile's as an arena. T-Mobile is not considered as an arena still. Yeah. It's not a stadium, right? So you know what? I guess I'm, I'm glad I just learned something tonight. Yeah. I assumed that T-Mobile was a stadium. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, like, oh, okay, you know, uh, we're going to start fitting some of these larger things in there. And I know we're talking about building a stadium now uh, if the uh, Raiders are ever to come here. Yeah. But I just, I, I guess I just assumed it was bigger. Yeah. No, I think, and I, I don't know the... Uh, uh the exact uh i guess i should have listened closer to the t-mobile arena <laughs> yeah but i'm wondering now you got me thinking what's the difference between an arena and a stadium because i would say open air but you can have uh closed stadiums you know what i'll bet the difference is i'll bet the difference is is it like an oval yeah, shape or is it more circular I'll bet if it's more circular, it's an arena. And if it's kind of oval like a football stadium, okay. maybe that's where it – let's look that one up too since I'm uh, – yeah, we're, we're, yeah, we're educating tonight, right? Stadium uh, versus arena. And the college uh, – Dallas has a, the roof that can open or close, Yeah, right? retractable. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Uh, let's see here. Um um. All right, hold on. Pulling up a definition here. How many of our fans right now might be screaming? <laughs> yeah, they know the answer. Yeah, we have to look it up. <laughs> um, just looking at some. Oh, see, I always hate when you have to go to um, uh, get an answer online, and it, rather than just have it sort of spelled out for you, you're looking at somebody's answer to a blog question. Yes. Yeah, because I don't know if I should take their word for that or not. Um, um, Okay, I'm not seeing any answers I like here so far. Uh, So far, I like my idea. (laughs) Um, I like the oval versus uh, circular. Yeah. Uh, Let's see here. Okay, hold on. Let me just look at... uh, It must be actually maybe even just not so much the seating. mm -hmm. Maybe it's the square footage of actual playable ground you know as far as could you put you know an arena as a basketball court whereas a stadium is either a baseball game or let me football field or soccer let me uh read from arena did you know arena has an official wikipedia page here's what uh, arena's wikipedia page says uh an arena is an enclosed area often circular or oval shaped designed to showcase theater musical performances or sporting events the term arena is sometimes used as a synonym for a very large venue such as pasadena's rose bowl but such a facility is typically called a stadium especially if it does not have a roof and it also says that if football is played in it it's typically referred to as a stadium huh. basketball or hockey referred to as an arena all right well let so me might be uh, the like i said you you couldn't foot you couldn't put a football game inside t-mobile no no, maybe that's how you you figure it out. Can you fit a football field in it? If not, in uh, fact, uh, so what do they call it? Is it a pitch? And uh, yeah, in soccer. Yeah, and in fact, I was going to say, if you do try to play uh, football inside an arena, they actually call it arena football. All right. I think maybe that's close <laughs> to the definition. Yeah, maybe maybe that's uh, this it. Is definitely the time we can ask our fans and anybody yeah. else to uh, 
fill us in on what they're everybody uh, has the right way to send us. So speaking of uh, big time arena rock shows, I've got to tell you about uh, the, the the member of uh, rock royalty that will be joining us for our live performance this Thursday night at the LA Comedy Club inside Las Vegas's Stratosphere Hotel and Casino. Free show at 10 p.m. with myself, Frank Mir, on stage taping phone booth fighting swap cast style with our friend Adam Hunter of MMA Roasted and our featured on stage guest, the UFC flyweight champion of the world, Demetrius Mighty Mouse Johnson. Before I reveal that name. I want to ask you, have you gotten your T-shirt yet? Have you gotten your official phone booth fighting T-shirt yet? Frank, have you ordered your T-shirt? I certainly hope you have. I haven't seen you wear one, so I know you have. Uh, in fact, I think you got each got, got both colors, right? I do, so I can change it up a little bit. Here's the website. People don't see me from day to day wearing the same T-shirt. Here's At least it looks you. like I'm doing my laundry. Here's where you get them. Well, the great part about having your own T-shirts is you can just not do laundry, I so guess. I it gets a little pricey. my fears in life. And actually, this is the first time in my life I've ever worn uh, on my own yeah. a shirt that has my face on it. By the way, the shirts we're talking about are available at phoneboothfightingshop.com. If you want to see what we're talking about here as Frank gets into a story, phoneboothfightingshop.com is the website to get your official Phone Booth Fighting Podcast t-shirts available in uh, two color choices. Well, um, I, in the past, I had went on a venture to open up my own clothing line uh, called Suffer. Mm-hmm. And uh, we had some really cool shirts, some shirts that I really, on my own, would grab and put on if I was going out to do something uh, that wasn't even fight related. I enjoyed some of the designs, but uh, there's a couple designs that had my face on there. And uh, I remember specifically one time, you know, at the time my wife and I, we lived in a two story house and I had already gone downstairs, have my gym bag ready to go. And I don't have an extra t-shirt. Right. And so I yell at my wife, Hey babe, you know, throw me down a shirt. So my uh, very loving and caring wife, (laughs) walks into the closet, grabs a T-shirt, one with my face on it, and throws it down to me. And I grab it like, come on, babe, don't give me this one. There's something else. She goes, why? It's a cool shirt. I'm like, no, I'm not denying it's not a cool shirt, but picture this. Right, coming back from training, this is the shirt I'm going to put on on the way back. I'm a little tired, a little fatigued. Maybe uh, I make an accident or I'm in an accident. My fault or not my fault. And here comes the uh, rescue team. And they pull my broken body out of the vehicle. And I'm not even able to explain myself. But they pull it out and they look and they see it and they go, is this douche wearing a shirt with his fucking face on it? Yeah. And I just, not the image I wanted to kind of leave this world with, where the last thing is the four guys that are trying to save my life are also now laughing their ass off. The only thing that would make it worse is they would be like, well, I'm... I'm not. Sh- I wasn't sure if that was him on the shirt, but he also is wearing a championship belt. So I think I think that is him. Uh, yeah. Well, it's funny you say that because I had that. My face is also on that shirt, uh, the phone booth fighting podcast T-shirts, and I had that thought too because I had never worn a shirt with my face on it. But I think it's a little e- it's a little more palatable because it's a funny cartoon image. So it's not like it's us trying to look all oiled right. up and No, the rough. one I'm talking about, the Suffer shirt specifically, Yeah, I'm yelling on it. It's one yeah. of the times that they, t- they, they took an image from after one of my fights where I'm yeah. screaming and uh, uh, you know shouting and just a, a rage of victory, you know, overwhelming. Uh, yeah, I rush. get that one, yeah. Yeah, so, uh, yeah this one's a little more self-effacing. Yeah, this one know, is this very is, serious. So, yeah. Yes. yeah, our phone booth fighting t-shirts uh, are, are a little more whimsical. Now, that being said... Our next phone booth fighting T-shirt 
the one that uh, is about to go to production Which for I those. Think, I can't wait to wear mine. That one's cool, too. It looks cool. It looks really cool. What do you see the uh, uh, image? You know what, though? Now that we're talking about this, I would be worried if I was you. Because yeah. at least if I get pulled out of the car and I'm wearing that shirt, they'd be like, ah, eh, it's kind of cool. You get pulled out of a car and they look and they go, does this smuck have a shirt with him squaring up with? <laughs> is that Frank Mary squaring off with? <laughs> Holy shit. Who does this? What? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I'll just be like, well, yeah, fight never happened because, uh, you know, he, he pulled out with an injury. But uh, they already had the shirts made. So, you know, I mean, they, they gave me a shirt and uh, wore it around. Yeah. Uh, well, see, all right. Now, now we're starting to reveal a little bit about uh, our next uh, our next T-shirt design. Those will uh, be seeing the light of day here in the next couple of weeks for you guys that have contributed to our Fund Anything campaign. And um, also, a quick note about that. For some reason, the Fund Anything site, the entire FundAnything.com site, is still down for maintenance, and this has like been over a week now. Now, if you've contributed to our campaign, do not worry, because I've got all your info. I've got your email, your contact info. You're going to be getting an email from me in the next week or so, whether you ordered T-shirts or if you did uh, like your co-host and a podcast with us, you know, some of the, the higher price rewards. Don't worry. I'm not saying we won't have a way to contact we you. You took we'll, your money and now you're screwed. Yeah, right. yeah no, it's not that. Because uh, we'll, we'll be uh, lining up all the dates for the, the uh, singular uh, reward packages in the next couple of weeks, and the T-shirts and the posters are, are about to go out because we, we finally got the artwork from the artist. He, he spent a lot of time doing the art. It's well worth the wait, but uh, we, we had to get those uh, produced, and now the shirts have to be made. But for whatever reason, that website is still down so as we record if you're listening to us uh and you're you're going and checking out fundanything.com forward slash phone booth fighting for the first time if it says site temporarily under maintenance or something like that just uh keep checking back i am contacting the people who run the site i mean this is a big comp this is the uh, adam carolla did his fund anything campaign there pin gillette did a big one so uh it's not like uh it's a fly-by-night operation i'm just not sure what kind of site problems or problems at all they're having it maybe they're doing some sort of massive update where the thing's going to be that much cooler but as soon as i get the lowdown on that i'll let you guys uh know and for those of you who have already contributed to the uh, campaign your gear uh will be on the way very shortly and in the meantime if you just don't want to wait for that site to be back up phone booth fighting shop.com once again for your t-shirts okay so thursday night frank uh you me on stage with adam hunter of mma roasted uh, free show, 10 p.m., L.A. Comedy Club Stratosphere, Las Vegas. Uh, you got still announce the name of the special I'm guest? about to do it. Oh. Demetrius uh, Johnson will be up there with us. But uh, I've added a name. Um, over the weekend, uh, fans of, uh, of uh, hard metal will uh, appreciate this. Over the weekend, I uh, attended a pool party at the house of one of my old rock friends, one of my oldest rock and roll friends, uh, as we both hail from the uh, Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex area, myself specifically from Fort Worth, Texas, and him from neighboring Arlington, Texas, from the legendary multi-platinum selling band Pantera, Vinnie Paul Abbott, the drummer of Pantera, who now lives here in Las Vegas. And he and I go way back from the, the Dallas days, and now he's moved out here. He's uh, He's got his new band, Hell Yeah, which is uh, 
going gangbusters. They just uh, headlined a show at the SLS uh, casino a month or so ago that I went to, and they're uh, about to head to South America and do a whole big tour down there. But Vinnie Paul Frank has a uh, first of all he's joining us uh, Thursday night he's going to be out there at the LA Comedy Club and he may get up on stage with us for a minute and uh rap really we could do a whole story a whole show just with him and we'll do that sometime you me and him just uh swapping some some rock and roll stories uh so he'll be out there with us uh Thursday night I confirmed that today for all you uh Pantera and Hell Yeah fans but uh so he invited uh myself and and uh and Jen my girlfriend over to his pool party on Sunday. Very cool. Let me tell you. This was a pool party. Um I used a to Rock and roll legend throws on a pool party. At his was, house. Let me just tell you the first thing. There were no kids. Yeah. And there probably should not have been any kids uh at this pool party he was these guys go back of course him and his uh his brother uh the legendary uh late dimebag daryl who was a guitar player in pantera and one of the greatest uh heavy metal guitar players of all time one of the all-time greats anybody will eddie van halen himself will tell you that um hugely influential and taken way before his time a number of years ago uh, but those two always played together. They had played together in Pantera. They'd played together in another band after that called Damage Plan, and in fact were on stage together the night that uh, that Daryl was killed. But uh, it, it took Vinny a couple of years after that to even just be able to get back into music, and uh, that's when Hell Yeah formed. And they've been around a number of years now. I think they got this is their fourth or fifth album that's come out, and they've really been embraced by the uh, the the metal community. And so he's living here in Las Vegas, and I had been to Dimebag Daryl's house uh, a number of times way back in, in the day. And those guys, what they did, Frank, was Arlington, Texas is halfway between Fort Worth and Dallas. That's actually where the Cowboys Stadium and all that is located. And those guys grew up in Arlington, and as big as they got and as many you know millions of records as they sold, they never left Arlington. So they were kind of like those guys that you grew up around that uh, they they turned into huge rock stars, but instead of moving off to L.A. or whatever, they toured the world, but they always came back to Arlington. And the way they lived was so rock and roll. Like, they, you know, they were able to buy big houses and things like that, but the big houses really just turned into clubhouses. Like, they, they, they were nice big houses, but they they were decorated like... Uh, a couple of teenage boys, you know, had run of the house when their parents went out of town. Um, Dimebag's house, for example, had not one but two Kiss pinball machines, basically where the dining room table was supposed to go. Um, it had cart like like drawings all over the walls from where you know people like Ace Frehley and Eddie Van Halen had come through the house and drawn pictures on the walls and things like that. One thing I remember about Dimebag's house was Jerry Cantrell from Alice in Chains was over there so often that they just gave him a room. You know, one thing when you have a, a, a big house with a bunch of extra rooms and you, you don't have a family or anything, I guess your buddies can just start claiming spare rooms. And that was one of the things that he did. Well, Vinny's house was very much in that same spirit. And I was showing you a little uh, Snapchat video uh, from uh, Sunday night at his at his pool. Now, his Dallas pool parties, and I'm leading into Sunday, 
And by the way, this is all culminating, and I got you an invitation, so don't worry. Uh, he, he told me that uh, next time we're over to bring my, awesome. bring my buddy. So, uh, but before he lived in, uh, in Vegas, his Dallas pool parties were legendary. And Vinny uh, loved the Dallas Cowboys, but he also came to really love the Dallas Stars, the hockey team. And the year that they won the Stanley Cup, Pantera composed a theme song for the Dallas Stars where they would come out of the tunnel, you know, and they would skate when they would introduce the team and everything. And it was like their good luck song and they end up winning the Stanley cup with it. Well, you know, this, I don't know if you know, uh, have ever heard much about the story of the, the Stanley cup, but you know, it's like a super old trophy, like a really old trophy. And, um, so when you win it in the NHL, every player on the team gets a night with the Stanley cup. Right. They get to share it. Yeah. And so, uh, so, the night that the Dallas Stars won the Stanley Cup, I think they beat the uh, the Detroit Red Wings, I think was the team they beat that year. And I think they won it in Detroit was what happened. So they had to fly back home that night. So they get on the plane and they call Vinny and say, hey, we're, we're headed home with the Stanley Cup fire up the the party pad because we're coming over oh i also left this out vinnie paul and dimebag daryl jointly owned one of the most popular strip clubs in dallas called the clubhouse so and they, they had access to many uh yes. young ladies yeah the the Favorite talent ladies the, the talent come over. yeah the talent was just getting off work when the party was getting started so it worked <laughs> out you're fine. telling them that they're going to come hang out with rock stars that's right and the stanley and cup the stanley cup champions and the guys that just won it yep so so they all show up there and uh i mean this was a crazy party they had uh they had the entire team showed up and uh see the stanley cup has a attendants that have to travel with it it has like two bodyguards that basically go with it everywhere it goes so and they wear like sport jackets and white gloves like they have this whole uniform that they have to have on you know with the the cup and they guard it so these two Boy, do those two guys have a story to tell exactly their <laughs> so so these two squares are uh are with the uh the cup by the way i, I honestly i should get vinnie to I tell you what i will do I, I i'm gonna get vinnie to retell this story when he comes out with his thursday now i'll just tell you the ending of what happened he's going to do a much better job of telling it but basically uh the stanley cup uh was up in Vinny's master bedroom. And things that cup has seen. <laughs> yeah. And so one of the Dallas Stars was up there, I guess, making use of the the abode and, and the talent. Yeah. And <laughs> Vinny said he was out in the pool with some of the, the players and uh all of a sudden the uh the the player that I don't know if he should rename nah, remain nameless or not. He comes out on the balcony and he goes, Hey, catch the cup and he no. throws the Stanley Cup off of the balcony, and it almost landed in the pool. But instead, it hit right at the side of the pool and goes, doink, and bounces into the pool and had a tremendous dent in the bottom of it. I mean, you've dented this, like, one-of-a-kind sports relic. that but they <laughs> probably in the best possible story to explain yeah. how you did it yeah and they had to end up hammering the dent out of the out of the cup and i think they came up with some convoluted story about oh no it got dropped when they 
got off the airplane or something. Anyway, Vinny will do a better job of telling that story Those Thursday night. Handlers, man. <laughs> yeah. So we we go to this pool party Sunday, okay, at, here in Las Vegas, and this thing was Vinny has he's bought this giant ranch house. And you walk in, and I, I told Jen, because she met me there. She was getting off work, and I, I went over for a little bit before she got off work. So I came out to the the where you pull in to meet her. And as we're walking in, because she's from you know Dallas as well, and I said, all right, you're going to think Arlington has come to Las Vegas when you walk into this house. And it's like you walk in. Uh, Vinny uh, and his brother Dimebag uh, were and are both huge kiss freaks. So right away, you're seeing like uh, uh, paintings of all four members of Kiss all over the walls, Dimebag's uh, guitars hanging all over the walls, Vinny's drums. There's a giant air hockey machine in the living room. Uh, there's arcade games. He had a guy who looked like one of the Duck Dynasty dudes doing a barbecue uh barbecue and everything but but he didn't forget about uh us uh plant eaters he had like this incredible spread of veggies laid out and everything but what was interesting was the buffet what the buffet i'll tell you once we're off air okay <laughs> the buffet had uh uh all of these like really graphic hustler centerfolds spread out as like the tablecloth he had a in his pool like this large rock uh like uh you know rock facade looking thing and it had a slide that came down so you could slide down from the top of it but he also had like a totally secluded hot tub up there so it was like a second story hot tub so it was like a cave almost kind of like the like the playboy grotto so it's like you walk uh, so you're in the pool and there's this giant waterfall but if you walked up there there would be this con this completely secluded hot tub that Seat would seat probably about twelve people, and probably uh, at the end of the night was uh, yeah was it was it was swinging. Yeah, it was. Don't want to touch that water in your mouth. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So anyway, we had an awesome time over there. And the first thing I told him was, I said, "All right, you got to let me bring Frank over here and let's do a podcast. I want to. We absolutely. need to tape over here." And he's like, "Hell yeah, absolutely, we're going to do it." Uh, so Vinny would be out there with us uh, Thursday night, LA Comedy Club. And uh, Stratosphere, nicest guy in the world, so come out and say hi. And uh, we'll have a we'll have a, what will look like the world's most interesting band photo when you, me, Vinny, uh, Adam Hunter, uh, George from MMA Junkie, and Demetrius all get together yes. for a photo. That's definitely uh, a good example of your life. Yeah. All right. That's going to do it for uh, Phone Booth Fighting. We uh, thank everybody for listening and uh, reminding you that uh, we have episodes twice weekly. We post these up on uh, Tuesdays and Fridays. And uh, the live show Thursday night you'll be able to hear on uh, Friday's edition, plus an appearance we anticipate from Anthony Rumble Johnson talking about his UFC 202 co-main event. PhoneBoothFightingShop.com is the website for T-shirts. Uh, subscribe to the podcast either in iTunes via Stitcher Radio or by going to PhoneBoothFighting.com. Uh, but Frank, if they go to iTunes and subscribe to the Phone Booth Fighting Podcast, as I do, what uh, what could they do? What could they do to help us out if they went to the iTunes page? Well, you know, obviously, we always say uh, very much uh, we highly uh, 
encouraged to leave a favorable review. That's very helpful. Click on that five-star rating. Maybe just write a couple of lines. Oh, we very much enjoy that. And like we said, we go out there and, uh, you know, you have an opportunity uh, if you say something, uh, you know, uh, there's the shot that we're going to read it out on a line and uh, on our show and you're going to be able to hear it. And then, uh, you know, obviously always the next best thing or probably the best thing that we always ask everybody to do is, uh, you know, tell a friend, you know, spread the word. You go out there and uh, just, uh, you know, open the door to other people that might be interested in what we're doing and, and what we're saying. And uh, the more minds that have become a part of this is uh as a movement, uh, you know, uh, more ideas are getting thrown our way. Uh, I enjoy it. Uh, it brings more guys to the round table. I feel like, uh, you know, I know that it's just you and I sitting out here with our, uh, you know, our mics talking and just shooting the shit between two friends. But uh, definitely now I feel like uh, the fans that listen to us are very much connected and a part of it. Yeah. Uh, we get to hear their input, their, their ideas. Uh, you know, there's already things that the fans that you've read off to me that we sit there and we go through that I'm like, ah, you know what? Maybe I don't think that way about something or this or that or, you know, uh, you know it gives me different outlooks and, uh, you know, viewpoints. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I'm very big on that, you know, and uh, I know you as well. We, we enjoy the conversation. And so it really uh, the essence of what this show is, is conversation. The more people that are part of it, the better the show becomes. Follow him on social media at the Frank Mirror. That's Twitter and Instagram. Follow me on social media, Twitter and Instagram at Richard Hunter. Follow the show on Instagram and Facebook at Phone Booth Fighting and Twitter and Snapchat at Phone Booth Fight, our Snapchat username, Phone Booth Fight, making a lot of uh, use out of that uh, here lately. Tell a friend. Just tell a friend. If you're going to do one thing for us, spread the word. That's how we're going to grow the show. For Frank, I'm Richard. This has been Phone Booth Fighting, and we will see you here in Las Vegas Thursday night, L.A. Comedy Club, 10 p.m. Free show, Stratosphere, on stage, Demetrius Johnson. See you then. Everybody was Kung Fu fighting Those kids were fast as lightning In fact it was a little bit frightening But they fought with